So we enter in this morning with a topic that is obviously a very sensitive one in nature, a much debated topic in our culture as of this moment, especially in the political realm. And you'll notice that this summer season we've addressed a number of things that have made it to the eye of the political realm and the media, a controversial type topics. And, you know, uh, it's, it's easy, and how many of you know this, it's very easy for us to be swayed by popular opinion or swayed by the culture at large and ultimately to co- find ourselves coming to conclusions on topics and really not out of scrutiny or, or research or facts or truth, but rather simply because we've been influenced you know, by our culture. And so right now we have entire generations that are really being bombarded by some of the things that are, that are making their way into the political arena. You know, and obviously this is one of those topics of which there's just a plethora of information and new studies and, and results that are going out there. And, and so, you know, lest we just hook, line, and sinker take the cultural tour down the winding river, I feel it's important for us to address this subject from a biblical perspective taking a look, digging into what does the Scripture actually say about this topic and, and how does that apply to us? How does that apply to how we vote? How does that apply to how we relate with one another? How we talk with different people? And, you know, I, I fear that far too many of us are, you know, we don't do our, our due diligence, but rather we are swayed by just the prevailing culture at the time. And just maybe some thoughts about this and kind of how this creeps in or what this looks like. It reminds me really of, of in the old, or rather, actually, even in the first church in, in the book of Acts, we read of the ladies who would have their head covering when they would pray. Right? Well, we know that the that the Bible specifically speaks to a number, especially in the epistles, a number of very specific instances, culturally relevant situations as it's speaking into church-specific issues, church-specific questions, culturally specific questions as it related to things happening in those churches at that time. Well, we can take something like head covering for us, which is a non-issue, but how many of you understand why you believe what you believe on that topic? Probably very few could articulate why women don't put a head covering on when they go to pray. Very few in our culture. But we've accepted that because of a cultural response. By and large, the culture says that's not something that we need to worry about. And by and large, as a culture, we've readily accepted that and just said, well, somebody else... You know, somebody else who's smarter than I am has excavated the truths of the word and his wife doesn't wear a covering, so I guess that means mine doesn't either. But again, this is an example of being swayed by the culture and not necessarily doing our own due diligence to dig into the scripture to figure out what it says. Obviously, my wife doesn't wear a head covering. But then again, we've done our due diligence to dig into the scripture on that particular topic. So if we were in in the time of... Uh, you know, the first century church, or even if we were in Arab states right now, probably the topic of a head covering when in prayer would never even be something that would enter our minds to challenge in Scripture. Wouldn't even think to challenge it because it would just be a part of our culture. You know, I think politics is kind of one of those things as well. And I think most of us, you know, we don't arrive at a decision to be, you know, independent or democratic or, you know, uh, Republican or, or, you know, libertarian or Tea Party. We We don't generally move into those declarations of our own accord. A lot of times it's because of the influence of our peers or the influence of our parents. 
in many cases, we haven't actually researched out fiscal responsibility, what we believe to be the best economic policies as we move forward, and, and socially, what we believe in what the Bible says, and are these people voting according to that or not. A lot of times, we find ourselves slipping into a particular political persuasion simply because we've been influenced by the culture around us. And so with that said, I want to jump into this topic as there's obviously a huge influence in our culture right now, you know, uh, with an effort to speak to us about what the Bible has to say about this topic. And in light of that, I think it's relevant, a very relevant topic, in fact, for us to kind of jump into today. You know, I don't want us to be deceived. I want us to come away with the knowledge of what the Word says to create foundation in our hearts and in our lives, you know, so that we have a firm foundation really to stand on to bring answers to some of these questions that inevitably loom in our hearts and in our minds. There is, in light of this, uh, this idea of the culture kind of bombarding us, you know, with how we should think on this particular topic, you know, I, I feel like there's, there are no further or no better uh, proponents of this than those who would actually create a Bible, you know, to support this particular theme. And so what we have right now that's actually been created is something called the Queen James Bible. Not the King James Bible, but the Queen James Bible. And in this, this particular translation of the Word of God, based on the old King James, as a tribute to King James, actually, uh, who they say historically was bisexual, as a tribute to him, to honor him, they've created this Bible somewhat in his name, you know, called Queen James. And as a result of that, they've gone through a number of scriptures that, that are there throughout that, that speak of homosexuality, our sexuality in general, and they've modified them just ever so slightly uh, to reflect what they believe to be a more culturally relevant you know, or more accurate translation you know, of those texts. And so what we, what we end up with is a Bible that is very pro-homosexual. And again, it, I, I am absolutely, I, I'm going to tell you right now, challenge your traditional understanding of scripture. Challenge it. You know, it, 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 it demands that we challenge it. It demands that we take a second look. I don't want to believe something because my culture has believed it. And by culture, I'm going to say even the Christian culture. Like, I don't want to believe a certain way because for the last thousand years, that's just what they've believed, so I'm just going to dive into that hook, line, and sinker. I demand, I, it demands of me in my relationship with God to do my due diligence to search out the Word, to come to understanding myself. So I have no problem with the fact that these texts have been challenged. But what I want to do today, or what I want to at least initiate in this series, uh, I want to actually go through and inspect the various adjustments that they have made, and I want to see if they're justified or not. So I want to take us on a journey. I'm going to read some of the things that they have actually uh, adjusted and then the scriptures, how they read, kind of post-adjustment. I'm going to read some of their logic behind that. Then we're just going to talk about their logic a little bit. I've got three scriptures we'll address this morning. Hopefully that won't take us longer than, than needed. And, uh, and we're just going to plow through it. So are you ready to kind of take this journey with me? Yeah. All right. So in the beginning, this is kind of what they say to, to set up this idea of scripture interpretation and or editing. They say, the Bible says nothing about homosexuality. However, there might be no, no other argument in contemporary faith as heated as what the Bible is interpreted to say about homosexuality. The Bible is the word of God translated by man. This, saying nothing of countless translations and the evolution of language itself, means the Bible can be interpreted in different ways, leading to what we call interpretive ambiguity. In editing the Queen James Bible, we were faced with the decision to modify existing interpretively ambiguous language or to simply just delete it. And and then I skip a little bit just for the sake of uh, making sense with what we're reading today. We edited the Bible to prevent homophobic interpretations. We made changes to eight verses 
and our edits are as follows. So our journey starts in, in Genesis chapter 19 this morning. And the first scripture that they point out to or that they've made adjustments to is the, the section that deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously, long-standing tradition in Christianity, you know, that Sodom and Gomorrah predominantly had something to do with sexual immorality, fornication, you know, uh, and, and we've always addressed the scriptures as such, stating that God destroyed that because of that particular sin. Uh, they uh, have a, a little bit different argument, so let's, let's just kind of sift through that just a little bit, starting in verse 1, just to give us a little bit of context. Uh, verse 5 is the scripture they've actually adjusted, but I want to give you just enough background to... Uh, get a hold of kind of what we're talking about. And then verse 1 it says, <clears throat> Now the angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot, was, uh, excuse me, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground and said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet they urged him strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house and prepared a feast and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened, unleavened bread and they ate before they lay down the men of the city the men of Sodom surrounded the house both young and old so all of the men both young and old so kids and old men and everything in between and all of the people from every quarter and they called to Lot and said to him where are the men that came out to you tonight bring them out to us that we may have relations with them now, in the King James Version, it doesn't say that we have, may have relations with them. It actually translates that phrase, that we may know them. And that'll become more significant a little bit later. Verse 6, But Lot went out to them to the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. And I want to read a little bit of their response to this. We side with most biblical scholars who understand the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to be about bullying strangers. Strangers were not well treated or well regarded at the time of the Bible, hence so much of the word urging the love and acceptance of others. We know that Lot, excuse me, we know Lot asked the men, do not know the angel visitors wickedly. In other words, brutally. We understand this to mean rape. Rapes such as this one are common between men in prison. They aren't sexual acts. They are power dominating acts. Therefore, we changed the verse to the following. Now, this is verse 5 out of Genesis 19. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into, the city, came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may rape and humiliate them. Now, at first glance, it looks like they actually you know, strengthened that argument just a little bit. At first glance, you look at it and think, Wow, that, that interpretation looks a little bit harsher than, Hey, we want to know them or we want to have relations with them. It's like, bring them out so that we can rape and humiliate them. It's like, wow. I mean, at first turn, you know, it looks really harsh. I think, okay, I could probably go with that. That's pretty good. But let's examine some of the logic actually behind, you know, how they got to that place. Firstly, they said most, most biblical scholars have said that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was about bullying, the bullying of strangers. You know, I'll be honest, that's the first I ever heard that. Uh, and so, as a result of that, I consulted a number of different commentaries uh, to find out that not one said anything about bullying strangers. But every single commentary, in fact, talked about fornication and homosexuality. And so, I think it's a bit of a massive overstatement to say you know, that most scholars uh, look at this, given that every commentary that I've ever looked at in the history of my life with Christ, you know, has uh, described something as quite the opposite. This word that's know, bring them out so that we may know them. Now, one of the interpretations of this 
uh, from folks who are trying to kind of re- rewrite the Bible on these texts, is they say, well, the strangers knocked on the door of Lot and they asked, hey, we want to get to know you. Hey, let's go have a beer. <laughs> you know, hey, let's go down to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. It's like, so, hey, we want to get to know you a little bit better. But uh, unfortunately, it, just, it doesn't really fit with nor, not, not the context of the sentence nor the original language. You know, the word that is rendered no is actually the same word that's rendered no when we look at Adam knew his wife and conceived Cain. So by, by no, it's the word yada. And I would love to maybe someday get into a, you know, a conversation or a sermon about what that means and, and how, what the implications of sex outside of marriage are in light of this word yada. I mean, that'll be a very good topic to nail down sometime. But in this case, it becomes clear that the, the, the biblical precedent is that it uses this word yada in a sexual context. Further, you get down, I think it's in, I don't know if it's, yeah, well, whatever. The, one of the next verses there, it says that Lot challenges them. Look, don't, don't come and do something. Don't do wicked with these guys. Don't be wicked. Don't, do, don't act wickedly among these. Well, I don't know about you, but inviting a stranger in for a cup of coffee so that we can get to know each other a little better is pretty far from wicked. So just based on the basis, basis of the very context and the nature of the scriptures that we, that we have there and the, the self-interpretation of the scriptures, there, there's just no way that we could come to you know, any kind of conclusion that they were trying to do something nice here. You know, and these translators, uh, bless them, got that right. You know, they actually moved into an interpretation where they talked about that it was rape. But I want to read, read their interpretation of rape to you again. And they said this in quotes, Rapes such as this one are common between men in prison. They are not sexual acts. They are power-dominating acts. So essentially what you have them saying is, at least in this context, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but at least in this context, that rape is not sexual. And because rape is not something that's sexual in nature, we have to relegate these passages to that simply of bullying. So they were bullying their strangers, and as a result of them bullying the strangers, the God of heaven decided to completely wipe this city off the map. No, not you. It seems just a bit harsh punishment for not being kind to strangers. Of course, in this case, their bullying was the not being kind to the nth degree in terms of being raped. But I'm not following their logic at this particular point. I, I can't get there. But when we, anytime we address Scripture, and especially anytime that we bring a challenge to a text of Scripture, something that you and I have to do, absolutely have to do, first order of business, is that we want to look at this Scripture and we want to challenge that in light of the whole of Scripture. What does the rest of the Bible have to say about this topic? Obviously, the Bible has a lot to say uh, about this topic in its broadest sense, but would you believe the Bible actually has some specific things to say about Sodom and Gomorrah as well? You know, so as we look at, well, what does God really mean? Was this an issue of bullying? And, and, and let me just tell you this, that, that, that bullying was absolutely there. They were absolutely treating these strangers harshly. Obviously, this was a precedent. This was something that was normal for them. You know, and by all means, this rape or you know, this, uh, this homosexual aggressive act that you see there was, was by no means their last sin or the only sin that you find in this city. And there are scriptures that confirm that. You know, these are people who were neglecting the poor and who were, you know, who were doing all kinds of stuff that was wrong in God's eyes. You know, so, so it wasn't the only scripture, but as we sift through the scripture to try to come to an interpretation on what exactly did God destroy this city for, we actually find an answer out of Jude chapter 1 and verse 7. And it says this, even, even, excuse me, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. 
it becomes clear as we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible that we have to render the events in Sodom and Gomorrah according to the traditional interpretation. You know, the Bible itself says that they were going after fornication. They were going after strange flesh. There's another one that talks about it, that there was an abomination, you know, which we'll get into that here after just a little bit. So this idea that they were being, that this city was decimated as a result of simply treating strangers poorly, uh, it just can't be justified with good biblical exegesis. It just, it just can't. So moving on to the next verse that they have, they've cited Leviticus chapter 18 and 22, and then again Leviticus 20. And 13. And it says, I think I've got them up there. I may read this just slightly different. It says, You'll not lie with a male as one lies with a female. This is an abomination. And then uh, chapter 20, verse 13. If a man also lie with a man as he lies with a female, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. That's the King James Version there, slightly modified. And then they go on to say, Leviticus is an outdated moral code. But with but, uh, excuse me, but still, we picked it as the most important book to address our edits, as most anti-LGBT religious activists cite Leviticus 18.22 and 20 and 13 as proof positive that homosexuality is a sin, even worse, a sin punishable by death. I mean, first of all, how many of you know that all sin is punishable by death? So, you know, the little white lie that you thought was going to be productive, punishable by death, it's all punishable by death. You know, homosexuality is not to be separately categorized. They all, we all fall short. We're all separated from the Lord. All sin before the Lord keeps us from entering into his presence. We're all falling short of his perfection in that respect. So, I don't know that that adds much to the text there. But they, they say, uh, to address Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, we have to look at the path of translation. The Hebrew word... Toebol, from which abomination is translated, simply means something that is ritually unclean or taboo. So, I decided I would look up the word abomination, and it's 117 uses throughout the Old Testament. And every single usage of the word, it was very strongly interpreted to say abomination, or some smite variable, abominations, or abominable, you know, something like that. 117 times, without exception, every single reference of this particular word was translated abomination. More than that, we look at the original language, toebol, you can see at the top, that's the, you know, the pronunciation as you would say it. So it actually comes from the root of 8581, out of the Strongs, which is what you see there at the bottom, the Ta'ab there, uh, properly disgusting morally, that is an abhorrence, especially idolatry, or concretely an idol, abominable. It's an abominable custom, or it's an abominable thing, abomination. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I can't, it doesn't sound like taboo <laughs> right there. It sounds like something a bit more serious. And then when we look at the, that, that tall ob there, it's to loathe something. So the root word for this word abomination, to loathe something, to morally detest it, to abhor it's abominable. We see that there again. And again, every single time we see it translated, it's, translation as, it's translated as such. So to think that it's t- taboo, well, it's just kind of frowned on. I mean, that's what tab- taboo means. It's like, well, in this area, this is something that you don't want to do. We just kind of, it's not that big a deal, but, you know. You know no, I, I, can't, I can't come to the same conclusions, unfortunately. So then they say, given that the definition of the Hebrew word, toebol, in Leviticus, we suggest by today's standards that the biblical abomination would be understood to be scandalous, 
And then it says, keep in mind a bi- that a biblical abomination by Levitical standards would be, would be scandalous for a Jewish priest. So specifically for a priest. Leviticus is a holy code for Jewish priests. So while it's true that the book of Leviticus obviously has some reference to the Levites, those who are called into the priestly duties to take care of the temple and whatnot, while that's true, it's not specifically to them or in an isolated way. It's not only for them. It's actually a book that's for all of the Jews to follow. And further, especially if we take the leap into the New Testament, we find out that we're all priests even if it was relegated to the priesthood, wouldn't we all aspire to the same standards of which they held those priests to, at least morally? But, 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 but more than that, we actually look at this chapter as it started out chapter 18 and verse 1. I want to read this, and then you can tell me, who is he addressing this to? Who, it's a whole list of different laws, do's and don'ts, things. This is what you don't do. If, and, and who's he addressing this to? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. I mean, you tell me, who, who is that addressed to? To the Levite priests, the Levitical priesthood, I want you guys to listen up. Hey, hey, listen up. Hey, priests, hey, who's called to be a pastor? Okay, you guys, I want you to, I want to, I've got a specific list to you. It actually doesn't say that, does it? It says to the sons of Israel. So it says to the entire lot of them who came out of 400 years of slavery and idolatry, to the entire lot of you, I say, don't do all of these things. Don't worship idols. Don't treat your brothers badly. Don't, you know, don't enter into lifestyles that are contrary to the word. And, and so, again, in this case, I can't give any kudos to their powers of translation because the Bible again itself firmly contradicts the conclusions that they've come to. So we see the next thing and this is the one we'll actually close with. We'll take a little bit more time with this. Out of Romans chapter 1. Uh, this is obviously bringing us kind of a hard plunge into the New Testament. Uh, and this is a verse, or rather this is a passage that is, is really strongly mentioned you know, uh, of course, as being an error. And it also happens to be the one, uh, specifically verses 26 and 7, that had the most massive translation or editing adjustments, you know, made to it. So let's just take a look at this whole section, you know, starting in 18 and ending in verse 32. Let's just take a look at it so we can get an idea of the context of what's actually happening. And starting it again in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and righteousness. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, we in his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the, uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And here are the two verses that have been radically adjusted. I'll read them as they are first. 
For this reason, God gave them over to the to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function of what of that which is unnatural for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned their natural function of women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Twenty eight. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do, uh, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Interesting, that one's in there. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although... They know that the ordinance of they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now they say to reflect our more examined understanding of what the of what is natural, and to clarify the subject matter of Romans chapter one, we have changed the verses to the following: verse twenty six. Their women did exchange their natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also to men, they left the natural use of their women and burned in ritual lust, there's the adjustment, one towards another. And then in verse 27, men with men, working that which is pagan and unseemly, there's your adjustment, for the cause of God gave, to the, gave the idolaters up unto the affections receiving in themselves that recompense of their error. So, there are three main arguments for the interpretation of Romans chapter 1. You know, the first one, which is, the, which is where these translators went, was that th- what this was speaking to were was those who were in breach of, uh, essentially in breach of the priesthood. So it was something that was isolated specifically to the priests. And as such, when you speak to this issue, they're talking about something that's actually done in a temple. So it's pagan worship. So homosexuality that's done as pagan worship in the temple, well, this is abominable before the Lord. You know, the, the, the second thing that we see there is that many will actually say, well, no, that's not true. What's true here is that we were actually, we were actually coming against men having sex with little boys. So that's how they interpret this. It, this, this when it talks about natural versus not natural and giving up, that's, that's actually, that's not homosexuality, that's molestation. And then the third one, which actually is gaining tremendous traction in our culture right now, is that they, they actually put a strong emphasis on what is natural and what is unnatural. And so they say that, well, it would be natural for a homosexual male to go after another homosexual male. Because after all, that's how they were born, and that's, that's natural. What would not be natural, or what would be contrary to nature, would be for a heterosexual male to go after another male. Because he's heterosexual, he should be going after women. Can you kind of see the difference? So, I'm going to take a look at each of these arguments just kind of one by one. Just kind of sift through them just a little bit. If we consider that homosexuality in this long list of sins and different things that it puts out there, if we consider that this is isolated simply to pagan worship, I think you have to ask of the text, why did Paul not also say that heterosexual sexual practices and acts in the temple were also an abomination? Why was homosexuality isolated in this particular text? Why was it set aside as something wholly different? I mean, after all, it's pretty clear, right? All sex outside of marriage, all fornication, adultery, all of that is sexual immorality, and all of that is equally as punishable. So why did they somehow separate homosexuality on this particular list? Why wouldn't he have mentioned it? Don't you think that Paul would have just cast a net out? 
We'll just catch a net. We'll just catch everybody that we can in the net all at once. So it's odd, I think, that you would pull this one particular thing out and say, well, in a specific context of idolatry in a pagan temple, then this would be wrong. So then the conclusion is that outside of that context, this behavior would actually be condoned. It's quite okay. So to follow their logic on that particular point, if the one in that list is okay, then that means that all of the other items that are described in that list would be okay outside of pagan idolatry as well. So in the Christian church, we should be able to lie and cheat and steal and do all the things that we see on that list, disputes and fashions and beat each other up and just do all that stuff. Because the context of this chapter in Romans chapter 1 is speaking very specifically of idolatry within a temple. Well, that means that all those things, if, they're, if you lie, cheat, and steal inside the temple, well, that's just abominable. But certainly you can do all those things outside of the temple. See, it doesn't make any sense to take one item out of the middle of the text and to pull it to the side and we'll say, well, this was speaking of something different. And then to allow all of those other things to speak again to be something completely separate. It, it, it really doesn't make any sense. You know, last week, I think it was last week that we talked about the idea of sin separating us from the Lord's blessing or his covering over our lives. And when we take a look at Romans chapter 1, what we actually see rolling out, we actually see rolling out is this idea of a, of a, a, a culture that's literally beginning to turn its back on God. So a culture that's beginning to turn its back on God and, and in some cases are specifically and intentionally removing him from their midst. And so what you see outlining in, in chapter 1, the, as you list it all out, is kind of what happens to a culture as they remove God and then they're released to their lusts. And so you look at, in verse 24 it says that God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. In verse 26, so God gave them over to the degrading passions, to shameful lusts, is what that word means, degrading passions. And in verse 28, God gave them over to their depraved minds. And as a result of that, what you see happening is, when you see these people who refuse to repent and who continue in a lifestyle of sin, God finally says, okay, then you'll have your reward. This is the reward in the culture, and we get the whole list of it. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, greed rather, evil, you know, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, and the list goes on and on and on. And so the question to you today is, do you see any of that in our culture today? Do you see any of the things outlined in chapter 1 in our culture, in the great United States of America, do you, do you see the manifestation of that in our own culture? And what does that say? But the best part is that it gets to chapter, or rather verse 32, and it says, and although they know the ordinance of God... That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So a culture that begins to remove God from schools, from church, from life, from, from any place of accountability. A culture that begins to do that moves into a place of moral depravity where he turns you over to the lusts of your flesh. And that's what we see lined out in here. But worse than that, what actually begins to happen is that people call what is good evil, and they call evil good. And they begin to stand up, and they begin to be proponents of these things in the culture, and they begin to take them like trumpets. And they say, hey, who are you to come against me? You know, who are you to say that I can't lie? Why? That's your moral code. It's not mine. It's all, it's all relative, isn't it? And you see a culture that begins to say, hey, look, it's all about me. It's a humanistic mindset. I'm going to put myself in the shoes of God. You know, I will prevail with what I want to do. And at the moment that we remove God from a culture, we literally remove the moral plumb line. Have you ever seen a plumb line? 
you know, when you hold it, there's a big weight at the bottom. And when it finally stabilizes, it is absolutely perfectly straight. Well, God has dumped, the, he's dumped his word out of heaven to us as a plumb line. He speaks to us on a daily basis as a plumb line to keep us. So as our culture begins to shift and begins to think that what is evil is good and what is good is evil, and they begin to take the winding river, we can revert back to the thousands of year old scripture, the unchanging truth of God that's been tried and true and challenged over and over again, yet continues to prevail. We can go back to that as the plumb line of God and challenge what's happening in our culture. But I think it's fascinating that even this very scripture says that as you begin to remove God, you'll see people with their megaphones standing up and demanding, hey, you need to think the way that we think. You know, that moral standard, that plumb line that you've got, that's wrong. You need to do what we do. I just, I find it fascinating because we see this so much in our culture. But in Isaiah chapter 5, it tells us this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Isn't that a fascinating scripture? Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and grass, collapses it into the flame, so their root will become like Ah, like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Obviously, at this point in the game, you can see that I'm a little frustrated with the translation that they've come to. I'm an absolute, I want to reiterate this, I'm an absolute advocate of challenging Scripture. I challenge it every time I read it. But wait a second, God, doesn't that seem to contradict this? You know, contradiction should just drive you towards Jesus. Why? Wait a second. This doesn't seem to jive. Well, why is that? And then your excavation of that truth is where you meet him. You know, you meet him and you find truth. The Holy Spirit teaches you. You know, so I'm an absolute proponent of challenging long-standing thought, making sure that we haven't just bought into cultural lies, but making sure that we're actually standing on the foundation of the word and what, what God really believes on the subject. So I have no problem with what they've done. Unfortunately... I just think they've actually allowed the culture to take them down the channeled river and to influence them as opposed to actually doing their due diligence to deep dig into the word and to excavate truth from it. So um, this next week, we wanna, I'm going to dig into a couple of different scriptures, but, but before we get to that, I, I really want to really leave us with just a thought. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. You know, it's likened actually unto fornication and adultery and any of those things that you see half the church running off into every day. You know, it's the same, it's that same sexual immorality, the same sexual depravity that slips in. You know, homosexuality shouldn't be pulled aside and, you know, and mocked as, and ridiculed as something else. I mean, what happens when you have a good Christian brother of yours, you know, who all of a sudden decides that the best course of action is to move in with his girlfriend? What do you do with that guy? I mean, do you, oh, he's, you think he's weird all of a sudden because he decided to shack up with his girlfriend? Is he weird? Do you decide you're not going to talk to him anymore? I mean, how do you react? Do you tell him, oh, you can't come to church anymore, I'm sorry, don't come through the doors. I mean, is that how we respond to sinners, to people living a lifestyle of sin? Do we freak out about it? No, I mean, if I have a buddy who does that, first and foremost, because of my relationship with him, I'm going to try to give him some counsel. 
man, you just, you know that you're moving outside of the protection in the hand of God. You know, I'm going to try to give him some good wisdom and counsel. Look, you know that, that, this, that there's actually a higher divorce rate among those who shack up with their girlfriends before. Like, you think that you're applying good wisdom of the world, but that's just what it is. It's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the Lord, you know, is, is what you should go after. I'm going to counsel them. I'm going to speak to them about their situation. If they still continue to resist me, I mean, I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to be taking advantages of opportunities, but I'm not going to continue to shove scripture down their throat. I'm not going to continue to beat them up. When they open up the door to opportunity and invite me in, I'm going to be talking about them then. Otherwise, I'm going to be on my knees in the prayer closet crying out to God for that man to move to a place of revelation and repentance so that he can come back to God. I'm not going to treat him any different when he walks through the door with his girlfriend that he's sleeping with. I'm not going to treat him any different. So why do we treat homosexuals differently? Why do we isolate them? Why do we somehow, I mean, you could have, uh, what would happen if a homosexual walked in, a couple walks in the door today, and they sat down in our congregation? How would you treat them? Would you, would you look over your shoulder at them? Now, I understand that it's a bit more obvious what's happening, but so many people walk through the door who are literally walking in a lifestyle of fornication. We treat them no differently, but it's the same sin manifesting in their lives. So while we've tackled, I want to go through this because, I mean, somebody literally put the the pain out to translate the Bible, to literally manipulate. I feel like it owes, we owe our due diligence to looking through the challenges that they've presented from from the standpoint of good exegesis of the word. What does the word really say? What is truth? I feel that we owe it to ourselves to dig into that, to figure out what we believe and why we believe. But I guarantee you this, it is not the best method for reaching your homosexual loved ones and your friends and the acquaintances that you come into. You know God says that, that it's an abomination. You're going to hell. Yeah, that's pretty effective. Like, good grief. You know, where, where is any of that? Where do you see any of that? And Jesus, who sits down in the dirt, and who knows what the man draws. I mean, but the, here's this lady caught in fornication, thrown at his feet. If anybody had the ability to pick up a stone and throw it, it was Jesus Christ. But he didn't do it. He looked at her as a daughter. And he looked into her eyes, and he blesses her, and he rebukes her. He disciplines her with the word, go and sin no more. But he doesn't chastise her. He doesn't look at her, oh my gosh, you're a freak. You know, oh, you can't come to church. You know, it's not that, it, we owe it to the, to the sin that's pervading our culture right now to address them in the same manner as we saw Jesus address it when he walked the earth. How dare us think that we can pull it aside and call it something it's not. I mean, how dare us not have take advantage of an opportunity to reach out to people who are absolutely hurting, who have deep wounds in their heart, who just desperately need for Jesus. He's the only one that can bring healing to that anyway, who can backfill that on the inside of them and bring them to a place of repentance. He's the only one that can do it. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can do it. But it's by His love, it's by His kindness that someone's moved to repentance. Not by the law, not by the scripture, not by the sign that says God hates fags. Oh my gosh, you want to beat those people and break their signs in half. And I probably would go to jail if I saw somebody here. It's ridiculous. It's just it's outlandish that we've, as a culture, that we've been known for this thing that we're against. We're not against, we're not against them. We're not against their movement. We're not against anything. They've done a lot of tremendous things. We're not against them as people. We need to love them as Jesus loved them. And we've got such a great example. I copied this article I want to read to you out of Charisma Magazine. It says, when two lesbians walk into a church looking to provoke Christians, may it happen to us. <laughs> Let's just go for fun. We'll see how much we can push their buttons, Amy teased her girlfriend. We didn't like the idea of hanging around a bunch of Christians. Come on, Amy insisted. <laughs> I, I hear their motto is, come as you are. I just want to prove that it's come as you are, unless you're gay. 
Amy had been in a, a nine-year running lesbian relationship that had just broken up, leaving her wandering, uh, wondering why her deepest longings could never be satisfied. She and Rachel had just started hanging out when they decided to attend one Sunday morning. We came on a mission to shock people, Amy admits. Rachel and I would hold hands in front of people, but instead of disgusted looks and contempt weeks that we expected, people met, uh, met eyes with us and treated us like real people. So we started coming to church weekly. We kept moving closer each week to the front row, trying to get a reaction out of people so that we would be rejected sooner than later. But we couldn't shock people. After a while, we stopped trying and we started listening. Not long after that, Rachel and I stopped seeing each other. But I kept coming to church. This is Amy, obviously. But I I kept coming to church because I was searching for something, Amy admits. I definitely wasn't looking to change. I... I wasn't, uh, it wasn't my lesbian lifestyle that I was bringing to God, but I wondered if God had answers for my deepest longings. The, the problem was, I didn't trust God at all. The more I listened, the more I learned about the teachings of Jesus, the more I started to actually believe that God really did love me. I heard more and more about being His masterpiece, and in time, I actually started to believe it. The more I believed God actually could see something of value in me, the more I trusted Him. Over time, Amy slowly opened her heart and struggles to Christ. It took several years, but as I moved closer and closer to Christ, He gently took me on a very surprising journey, she says. First, I found out that my father had nine affairs while I was growing up, a secret that had rocked my world. Jesus began to show me how the roots of my sexual issues tie together with my dad's. I was just like him using people to find comfort, life, and love outside of God. Amy continued to grow in her knowledge of the Scriptures, falling more in love with the Lord. The following year, God had another surprise for her. I went to a seminar called To Be Told, hosted by Gateway. I wanted to see how God could put closure to my brokenness, but what He showed me shocked me. As Dan Alender was telling the story of a bully Amy recalls, I suddenly had a flashback of getting on the school bus. I lived down the street from Jimmy, a boy who had bullied me all year. But this particular Jade, Jimmy acted nice to me as I got off the bus. He apologized for being so mean, and he invited me to come into his house. That day in the seminar, all else faded to black as a vivid nightmare crept back into my life. Amy saw herself walking through Jimmy's front door, noticing that the shades had been pulled down, startled. She spied two teenage boys eyeing her with a ravenous look, and the door slammed shut. Her screams never escaped the evil darkness that enveloped that house, enveloped rather, that house. They pinned her down, and they raped her. She was only nine. Amy swam in a pool of tears as the, sem- as, as the seminar continued. Others were, ob- were oblivious to her divine epiphany. She realized the Lord had been drawing her near to strengthen her for this revelation, to show her the source of so much sexual struggle hidden for years beneath layers of protective mud. After that, she says, I realized that God knows more about me than I even know about myself. And he wants to bring healing to these wounds, so I fully gave him my heart and my body, everything. As I continued to seek intimacy with him, the lesbian struggles fell away. I'm not saying that's how God works with everyone, but it's how He's healing me. The more I focus on God's intimate love for me and, and try to see His masterpiece emerge, the less I want anything, or the, the less, the less I want anything to get in the way of His work in me. Seven years later, Amy leads our ministry 
to help people find healing and wholeness from all kinds of sexual and relational struggles. She's helping others become God's restored masterpieces. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how, how, how do we treat these folks? I'm tackling this, I suppose, from an intellectual standpoint. I mean, I want to sift through the scriptures. I want to see if there's any merit to the translation that they've presented in this Queen James Bible. I have no problem with their challenge on that. But when it's all boiled down, when it gets right down to it, these are folks who just need Jesus. They just need the love of the Father to embrace them. You know, so many that we've encountered or listened to testimonies over, they have, they have broken homes and fathers who are absentee for one reason or another or some perverse sexual malicious act somewhere in their past that's contributed to their behavior and to their persuasion in their minds and generational curses that they come under. I, I want us in this series, even though we're tackling these scriptures, and you obviously know by now that I don't agree with anything that they have come to in terms of conclusion. But I want us to begin to put ourselves in their shoes in this series. Put yourself in their shoes. Men, put yourselves in their shoes this morning. What if somebody looked at you and said, hey, you know how you like women? You know how you're attracted to women? You know how you have never thought of another time when it was any different? That for as long as you can remember from your first thoughts of memory, you were attracted to women? Yep, that's all wrong. What? Yeah, God didn't create you like that. God didn't create you like that. You're, that's a mess. That's an abomination. That's a sin. What do you mean? I, I've never had another thought. This is, I've always had this persuasion. Can you just imagine? Put yourself in their shoes. Everything. It's not, it's, not, it's not just a decision, though certainly it is. It's not just a decision. Everything on the inside of them says, this is the way, go in it. The culture bombards everybody right now saying, this is the way, go in it. Don't fight this stuff. We're just going to rewrite the word of God to reflect a more positive connotation on this. I mean, everything that they're seeing, everything that they're hearing, and so many have gone to counseling, so many have done different things, only to continue to just live in the mire and have no idea how to get cleaned up. Again, culture is telling them, why get cleaned up? This is perfectly fine. God made you like this. These are the ta- topics that eventually in this series I want to begin to tackle. But I ha- you have to begin to get yourself into their shoes. You ha- if you can just begin to understand the challenge of, of these folks in our society, in our culture right now, if we could just get a hold of that. I believe that it will incite compassion on the inside of us that causes us, instead of sneering and snickering and scoffing and looking over our shoulder and being freaked out by them, it will cause us just to love them. Just to love them right where they're at. To take them in. Just Just to give Jesus to them in the truest sense of the word. That is what I desire to come out of this. More than a challenge of the prevailing cultural doctrine, if you will. It's loving these people. Can you get behind that? So let's pray. Father, we even asked just this morning that, that, you, would, that you would speak truth. That's, that's what we're here doing. But that you would get the truth out. And more than just the truth of the error of Scripture, God, the truth that you are the healer. That you're Jehovah Rapha. God, that this is your desire, this is your design. Father, let so many who have the testimony of freedom right now, let their voices be heard in the earth, God. And we ask that you would transform our hearts, that our, that our pre, 
disposed negativity towards these folks, God, would, would just be erased, would be eliminated, that you would stir up something on the inside of us that's just your love being poured out, like your liquid love being poured out, that when we see these folks, God, we can embrace them just as another human being who you love, that we could love them with your eyes, with your heart. We could see them the way that you see them. We can see the potential in them, Jesus, and that you would give us words to speak. So we ask that you would stir up opportunities, Father, as we jump into this, opportunities for the different ones in our sphere of influence, Father, for conversations to come up, just for us to be able to reach out in love. So we commit our hearts to you, God. We commit our hands and our feet to you, God, that your purposes would be revealed, that your righteousness would be revealed, that truth would be established, and that people would be able to come into the kingdom, that people would have a radical sozo healing encounter with you, God, as a result of the ministry of people at Harvest Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.